Hey, y'all, it's Moscow here. Quickly, before the start of today's show, I wanted to tell you about the Growler Chill. The Growler Chill is one of the coolest beer products I've seen in a long time. It's a household countertop tap system for standard growlers. It holds three growlers. It keeps them fresh and cold for weeks at a time, and you can have them on tap right in your home, right on your countertop. It's compatible with both 64- and 32-ounce growlers. It keeps them cold. It keeps them dark and free from oxygen and under pressure. Yes, a growler under under pressure. Go check this product out. It's on Kickstarter right now for just a few more days. Growlerchill.com. And if you get in your pre-order now, you can save $40 off the MSRP and be the first of your friends to own this truly terrific product. They set a goal of 175 grand. They're up past 625 grand now. And the bigger their initial order to their manufacturer, the lower the retail price of the unit. And it's just a killer unit, both in terms of function and form. So go check it out. Growlerchill.com. You'll be glad you did and now here's the sour hour the sour hour is meant for the serious brewer the sour hour may contain some seriously funkified content the sour hour is not for the faint of heart so exercise some damn discretion would you please sheesh and now the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. All right. It's that time. We're back. Mike sounding great. All right. <laughs> Success right out of the gate. Yeah, I'm sounding Doesn't better sound than like last it. time. I was... Definitely ill on the last show. Apologies for that. But Scott, as always, changed my voice to sound, you know, moderately listen toable. Well, you knew during the show, you were like, I'm not even going to sound sick in post on this show. And yeah. you don't. I didn't even actually do a lot of that talking. Because I was like, I'm checking out. Can you just computer generate my voice and answers? <laughs> right. And you already know all the information. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, actually, do we even need you to show up here anymore? No, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. It's that time. I love it. It's the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. I'm your host, Jay. We're at the Brewing Network Studios in downtown Concord. I always love saying that. Uh, here with Scott. Hey, Scott. Word. And Bevo. Hey, Bevo. No, she already left. <laughs> Even when she's here, she's not she's, here. She's in the building, uh, maybe still. Bevo. But uh, yeah, good to have Bevo back. And we've got uh, tonight's guest in studio, Jeremy Grinke, production manager, at Brewery Teru. What's up, guys? Thanks How's for having me in. Super happy to have you. It's been a long time coming to be uh, talking brewery beer with you. As a lot of our listeners know, that was uh, my old job before uh, I started at the Rare Barrel. So uh, it's going to be great to not only reminisce about old times, but see you know where the new direction is and taste through a lot of the beers that you brought with you. Yeah, I'm excited to share where we're at and, um, you know, discuss a little bit of history. Thanks for having me in. Oh, yeah, of course. And it's great. You know, this is we're in the middle of uh, sort of the eye of the the hurricane of San Francisco Beer Week right now. And uh, as we mentioned on the last show, we get a lot of great brewers coming into town. So uh, this is kind of the start of uh, two weeks where we're going to record three shows, actually, all in studio guests. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited for sure. There was some calendar confusion earlier, so I just wanted to make sure. Well, now we're on for noon later this week, right? For on Friday? Yeah. No? Are we looking at the... Oh, do I have that right one here. wrong, too? 11. Yeah, oh both are God. 11, too. Okay, well, that's totally on me. That's okay. That's okay. I, like, I like the early start, you know? 
It's like the coffee is more acceptable earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. Because I come and then have my like 5 p.m. coffee to the, right. do the show normally, and that's bad news for, for later trying oh, to go to sleep. Oh, you are one of those people that you drink coffee at 5 p.m., and that that's affecting your 11 p.m. I'm trying to sleep? Well, all my, you know, jacked up testosterone from being live oh, all, you know, with, <laughs> in front of millions of people right, watching, adrenaline. you know, brewingnetwork.com slash TV, right. watching us right now. And then the, what, billions listening live? Yeah, how many live in the U.S.? 320 million plus Canada, U.K. Yeah, billions. Yep, yep. Just get jacked up from that. (laughs) I see. Okay, I understand. (laughs) Um, If you guys want to contribute to that testosterone spike, you can call us, which is always exciting. 888-401-BEER. You can also join us in the chat. Email us during the week for feedback. Scott at thebrewingnetwork.com. Jay at thebrewingnetwork.com. Subscribe on uh, iTunes. That's a thing. Yes, that is a thing. And... As always, Scott, should we read one of our recent iTunes reviews? Yes, we definitely should. I do have a uh, sound clip. Review of the week. No, I heard this. Okay. Sorry for speaking over it. Yeah, you said you would overlay some some sound effect from the show before I didn't remember doing, but then I was like, hey, that sounds awesome. Yeah, well, now we're doing it live. And just, yeah, we need a clean right. version of you not talking over it. All right, are we ready for the review of the week? Review of the week. Okay, the review of the week this week comes from, let's see, this is Scotty Boy 333 It's not you. Not me, I swear to God. I'd be 332. The uh, title is Becoming My Favorite Podcast. This podcast is really quite something for sour beer brewers, (laughs) and it's no surprise that the show has ensorcelled so many. It is truly a proportional response by the BN to the rise in popularity of sour beers. The Sour Hour is so much better than the BN's flagship show this session. Due to forces unseen, the session crew felt the need to feed the flatulent monster or release supermassive belches of air apropos of nothing, whereas the Sour Hour is full of keen observations. Oh, my God. Scotty boy. Well done. That's I counted nine. Nine rare barrel references on there. Good stuff. Justin's nightmare. So (laughs) (laughs) that's doubling down, not only talking smack on the session, but you know, Justin famously does not like our names at all. Well, and come to think of it, you know, we have mentioned not in a long time, and actually I wonder how this beer's doing, there is a barrel uh, in toward the front of the rare barrel barrel collection with a very coolly chalk-drawn hot grenade on it. Yes. You know what it's it's like when the valet parkers, they keep the Maserati and the Range Rover up mm-hmm. at the front so you can see it, and they yeah. park all the Tercels, just, you know, it's out of sight, right? I have a Tercel, you're keeping but keep your, going. You're keeping your cool... <laughs> I, th- well, I thought it was a Volvo. No, yeah, I'm just okay. <laughs> you're keeping your cool barrels up visible at the front. But A, uh, how's that beer doing? And B, a great name for whatever comes out of it eventually, Justin's Nightmare. I like the Justin's Nightmare. Unfortunately, there's nothing in that barrel. Oh, it's empty? Yeah. Oh, geez. We get those questions all the time because we do, you know, these collaborative events or, you know, something for social media where Danielle, our uh, sales and marketing coordinator, will kind of just hand draw people's logos on these barrels. We get questions about them a lot, like, oh, what's in the... You know, New Belgium one, what's in the, what I'll call the Brewing Network one, Mm -hmm. because I can't, those were your words, the other ones. Yeah, oh, I'm just, that's just a description. That's not a title I, of anything. I can't. A hop grenade, it's a description of I, what the drawing is. I don't know. No. All right, Jay. No, no. He has no I idea don't know what, what that is. There's a Firestone one, uh, Soundmaker, all this uh, kind of stuff. So, but we do get asked about, they're just our decorative barrels that 
were kind of rejected throughout the process. You know, I'm sure you guys, Jeremy, go, go through a lot of barrels that. Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> don't make the cut, or the or the sometimes the beer in the barrels go bad, and you're just like, I'm not going to take the chance of reusing this barrel. So a lot gotcha. of those we collect, and they just kind of line our tasting room as decorative. So here I've been waiting with bated breath to see what comes out of that thing, and meanwhile it's it's just air. It's, it's uh, mo- uh, probably mold. A, a yeah. moth is going to fly. Yeah, mold. <laughs> but yeah, we'll give that to Justin. <laughs> Justin's nightmare. Excellent. Well, thanks for that review, Scotty Boy three three three. Indeed. Okay. Let's do this. Let's uh, maybe get to a quick question before a quick break. Okay. Uh, so we can just dive into uh, a lot of the beers that Jeremy brought and uh, talk about the brewery Teru questions today and all days. Brought to you by sourbeerblog.com. I mentioned on the last show, he's got an article up there about Chester King's Spawn beer. Which uh, they were just on the session, and I don't know, you may see them on another BN show sometime coming up. So, yeah, teaser. All right, this is a, an oldie but a goodie. This is from Mike Adair Jr., and I figure this is just a good thing to, to sort of revisit quickly uh, with Jeremy here. So, uh, Mike says, Hey guys, a couple quick questions about culturing my own bugs. I currently have a few Erlenmeyer flasks with one to two liters of wort, into which I added cultures from dregs. Unless this is, what is D-R-E-O-G-S? Dreogs? He means dregs, right? Yeah, I okay. think so. Yeah. Into which I uh, added cultures from dregs. Uh, others have bugs, yeast I caught from areas in and around my house. My question is, how do I continue with this? They all have a pellicle on them. Some are about a half an inch thick. Do I just keep adding wort? Do I decant and try to keep liquid only, not pellicle? Do I stir up the sediment on the bottom and pour in additional wort? Uh, when I want to use this in a beer, do I just pour the liquid in? Or should I get all the sediment in suspension and pitch that in as well? Why don't I rephrase that and toss it to you, Jeremy? So, you know, at Teru, you know, you guys have tons of barrels, big fooders. You deal with large, larger volumes than a lot of home brewers. But do you ever, you know, have a barrel that you'd like to, the culture in there you'd like to prop up? Or something on the small scale that you need to move, that you'd like to kind of use in that larger production? And, and how do you guys handle that? You know, I'm sitting here shaking my head listening to that question because it's... Uh it's a home brewing question, so it, it's uh, I don't know how you say uh, it's, it's difficult to work on that small scale. To answer him, I would I would just feed it. I'd give it some sugar and mm-hmm. get it active. If you want to concentrate it, get it cold. Take the bottoms. For us at Teru, we work with a pretty consistent house culture for our barrel program um, that we are currently in the process of trying to isolate again and break down and potentially rebuild just to protect ourselves. Um, it's a project we're getting started on, but we're not really fully into it. I do like the idea of, you know, going through the whole cellar the way you have with your rare barrel and finding something that is an expression of where you want to be and, you know, going in that direction. So I, I think what we're trying to do right now is just figure out where we're actually at. We've been through, you know, multiple generations of beer throughout the years and, you know, trying to protect where we're at, but also try to, you know, blaze a path forward. I don't know. I, I that's a really hard question to, to answer. But I personally, when you're homebrewing, you're about as experimental as you can be. Mm-hmm. You've really got nothing to lose by trying anything and everything. I would just go for it, pitch some of it, isolate some of it. I don't know. I mean, that's a good point, though, because you're talking about your guys' house culture and wanting to kind of break it back out into components. So I could almost reverse that and answer it that way where, you know, he's talking about how is he going to split this up and approach it, you know. Maybe one thing to do is just keep them separate. Of course, that takes more vessels, which is always challenging for a home brewer. And I feel like a little bad sometimes because a lot of times my advice to home brewers is all based on having more vessels. But at the same time, 
you know, they've got probably their clean beer program. They've got maybe their sour beer in a different, you know, cupboard or closet. And it's like they're, they're barely getting away with they're the one gallon jug. And, you know, I don't want them to, to tell their wives, like, Jay says I need three more gallon jugs. <laughs> <laughs> Jay says we need to upgrade houses so I can get a four-car garage. And 10 early mile flasks. But, you know, having them separate and blending them together, I think that's all good. Uh, the step up, you know, I think our seller manager uh, at the Rare Barrel, Mike, touched on this from what I've heard from the first uh, Rare Barrel episode from the last couple of shows. I think he was recommending kind of doing a 250 milliliter wort starter. He put it on a stir plate for about a week and then stepped it up to about one and a half liters, two liters, something like that. If it's just bacteria, I think he was talking about not doing the stir plate. I can get behind all that. One thing you may want to do is just examine what you want out of the beer. So, hey, I want this to be a beer that's going to have a firm acidity, you know, maybe lower the hopping rate on the wort you're going to feed it with. And on the flip side, especially if you're trying to culture wild yeast from around your house, that's an area where you want to discourage the bacteria and let those breads kind of grow and express themselves a little bit more. So best of luck, but it sounds like you're doing a cool project and that is an oldie, but a goodie. The, how do you manage the culture over time question? We we probably get that every two or three episodes, but it's always in a different context and always with new guests and can get new perspectives on it. So I mean, I think if you're making a lot of beer, it's really easy to manage those types of things but you know if you're making a sour beer at home once every four months you know you got a challenge trying to keep that stuff going and i think we mentioned on the last show also it's like it's so geared towards one batch when you're a home brewer it's like this is my chance yeah and you kind of got the one shot on it so all the things you do on brew day the hot side adjustments the initial primary fermentation all that has such an extreme impact on your beer especially when you're not you know on your 10th pitch of a house culture and you know how it's going to go it can be a little nerve-wracking. So as much prep and testing and all that stuff as you can do beforehand, I think, the better. Yeah, well, and it occurs to me, too, you know, especially advanced brewers that are really, you know, interested in process repeatability and being able to make the same beer on the, you know, the clean side of their programs. Is it fair to say that's just never how sour beer will work? There's just going to be misses? Like, I'm a goalie in hockey, right? I can never go in assuming I'm going to get a shutout every game. I hope for it. Nah, but it's just, it's just a part of the process that there's gonna, <laughs> I'm going to give up a goal, two, three, every game. It's just part of the deal. Dominic Kosick would never say that, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> you picked the guy. I, I, it's like one of the goalies I really dislike. Kasich. Martin Brodeur. There Sorry. you go. Okay. Brodeur. <laughs> yeah, but you know no, what I'm I, saying? Like, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, you have misses on the production side, too, the more traditional production brewery side of things. The feedback there is more immediate where it's like, a week, a day, two weeks, a month, you're going to find out this beer is not a good porter or IPA, whatever it's going to be. Sour beer, so difficult because you can have dormant off flavors that developed. You know, we were talking, we had our, our event with uh, the brewery and society guys. Uh, we call it the reunion where we have uh, these guys up and have all of our beers together. It was a great time at the Rear Barrel uh, last Saturday. And it's great because we all get to hang out and just chat beers. And one thing I brought up was, you know, this this string of batches that got this uh, chlorophenolic off flavor to them. It only manifested itself after, from our perception, a month or two. But we had already brewed it with the same culture in the same way. So we actually just were doubling down on the same problem over and over again without knowing. And then we had to end up dumping all that beer. So that, you know, you're right. That is always going to be there because there's... 
you know, maybe one day we'll look back and learn something and know why that happened a little bit more or have like a direct scientific connection to, oh, here's the process. Here's what happened. And then that's why this off flavor developed. But a lot of that's being developed right now. Mm -hmm. So, but it is going that way to more of like the traditional production process. You're going to have the traditional things in place. Um, you know, I know the brewery has a, a, a staff that can, you know, it's a robust staff. You know, we got the brewery and then brewery to rue, you know, different areas. But you can share the same resources, the quality department, and kind of try to troubleshoot on a lot of the sour wild area. The same things you're going to troubleshoot in theory on the production side. Agreed. Hey, thanks for the shout out. Thanks for the clarification <laughs> on the brewery versus brewery to rue. Absolutely. <laughs> That's always a big one. Let's get into that a little bit more, but before that, let's take a quick break. So give us a chance to go open some beers. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Are you a member of the American Homebrewers Association? Well, you should be. Members of the AHA can focus on brewing beer, and the AHA takes care of the rest. The American Homebrewers Association advocates on behalf of homebrewers like you to legalize the hobby in all 50 states and make sure that beer laws make sense. Plus, there are many great benefits that come with your AHA membership, like pub discounts that give you awesome deals at bars, restaurants, breweries, and more, Zymergy Magazine, and eZymergy. For tons of articles, how-tos, easy-to-follow recipes, and news about the hobby you love. And access to the members-only content on homebrewersassociation.org. But the AHA can't do it without your support. Join today so the American Homebrewers Association can keep fighting for your homebrewing rights. Visit homebrewersassociation.org or join right now from the homepage of the Brewing Network website. Relax. Don't worry. It's the American Homebrewers Association. Hi, this is Rudy, the brewmaster from Rodebach. You listen to the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. All right. Sorry. <laughs> We're back. Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Here with Je Jeremy from Brewery to Rue. J J Jeremy. Je Jeremy. Off to a great start in the segment. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we got a couple of beers poured out, but... Before we get into that, I want to thank a couple of our great sponsors. I've got to be on top of this, Scott. Let's do a lot of sponsors. Wine and Hop Shop, wineandhop.com. It's where you're going to get your sour beer, wild yeast, and bacteria from Omega Yeast and Giga Yeast. Most of them is going to ship within 24 hours. And best of all, be in listers in the continental United States. Get a flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 50 pounds. Just enter be in shipping in the nose field, the shopping cart, and the discount will be taken off after checkout. The Wine and Hop Shop, wine, wine and, and hop. hop. Dot com. Dot com. It's funny, Ben from Wine and Hop wrote me, and, and you saw the email yep. I've ordered to you, and that's why you hit the, uh, make, you know, continental U.S., because I'm guessing, you know, he's got people from Australia and, you know, Denmark. like Alaska, Hawaii, I'm gonna, Australia. Exactly. I'm going to need that flat rate shipping. Uh, yeah. And he's like, you know what, dude, you got to tell, tell these guys. Which is, yeah, that's fair. It is fair. That's a fair deal. <laughs> Very fair. Still a great deal. If you're in the lower 48, wineandhop.com. I also want to thank our great sponsor, Oregon Fruit Products who are on with us for another year, and they're going to do some session stuff as well. I know they. you guys do a lot of, with uh, Chris at the brewery. Is that right? We do. We use a lot of organ fruit. Awesome stuff. Easy to use, convenient to store, no additives or artificial flavors, simply great expression of the raw fruit. They love working with brewers to help us innovate. Check them out at fruitforbrewing.com. Oregon Fruit. They bring fruit 
to life. Oh, I was waiting for Lachaim. Yeah, no, that's, that's, great. Just, that's special. Okay. That's a great tagline. Speaking of fruit, we've got uh, or or fruit. Speaking of fruit, <laughs> we've got two beers in front of us. One is Frederick H. And by the way, I should say this is with all the new, newish to me since I was at the brewery for a long time. All the brewery Taru labels and you know the big logo. It's beautiful stuff. I really like the branding on this. But we've got Frederick H. and Frucht. Frucht. Boysenberry. Mm. Boysenberry. Two beers that you know were not there back in my day. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell us a little bit about these and the similarities and differences. Yeah. Um, so this beer Frucht is. Or actually, let's start with Frederick H. That is our replacement beer for Hot and Roth. This is a designed beer um, that we made for our 250 barrel fooders um, that we source through Fooder Crafters. So basically, this beer is kind of a departure from the rest of our sour program and the fact that this is designed to be a beer that was strictly Brett and Lacto. There is no PDO in the beer, at least by our hands. Um, if there's somehow got in there, it's in there. But we haven't seen any real signs of, uh, of any kind of PDO type, you know, byproducts. So it's designed to be a very clean beer, very um, tropical um, in the aromatic profile. It's obviously very sour. Probably one of our more, actually it is our most sour beer that we do make. Hmm. But basically it's our base beer in the fooder. We pull that beer out, um, package that off um, for national distribution, and then we're doing a big push on our Fruct brand, which is basically the same beer pulled out of the fooder and then aged um, separately in secondary tanks for um, secondary fermentation. The one we have in front of us today is the Fruct Boysenberry. Mm -hmm. Um, That's our first um, Fruct product for 2017. That will also be nationally distributed. I think they're tasting pretty fine. Um, yeah, curious yeah, what you do. guys are thinking. It's terrific. I'm actually surprised to hear you say that this is the most sour beer Me that too. you guys have. Well, I think it's a clean sour, mm-hmm. but as far as um, TA and pH, it's, yeah. it's our most sour. What do you know the TA of this beer? I think it's like 17 grams per liter. Okay, so it's pretty high. Um, but you know, it not being barrel aged, being you know two to three month turn time, mm-hmm. it really doesn't have a chance for the acetic to come to play right and so, just, but in a huge fooder in a huge fooder yeah, yeah 250 barrels and so we're turning those fooders well we're never completely turning them we're solera thing ing totally a word yeah, yeah totally <laughs> a word but you know we're we're pulling beer out of that those fooders every two months and replenishing it so you know quick turn we're not, you know not letting time go by long enough to really have acetic acid problems so you know it's it's a clean crisp sharp sour beer and that's pretty interesting to me because this is not too sour to my taste. I don't know. How, what's, how do you interpret these guys? The same. Yeah, I was surprised to hear him say that as well. I do remember Hottenroth being pretty tart for what it was. Wasn't Hottenroth like 3 point something percent? It was really low ABV. Yeah, it was like a 3.8, 3.7, okay. sometimes 3.9, sometimes 3.1. I mean, it was you know kind of all over the place. And I always remember that beer being like, yeah, this is really tart and, and nice for being mm-hmm. the low alcohol session beer that it is. And this was, what, a little spicier. This is like four and a half. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, this would be, you know, I guess you can con- consider it an imperial form of, of a Berliner. You know, it's, it's not really true to style as far as uh, ABV goes. But Brewery True is the brewery, and we don't really fit many styles at all. So mm-hmm. we're okay with that. Yeah, but you guys do, uh, you know, we were talking about this before the show, you do anchor it with that description of, you know, that's what people should expect. It's going to be a fooder-aged German or Berlin-style right. tart right. wheat beer. 
can stick three or four more words in there. You probably. certainly <laughs> could. A little bit of a- ambiguity to uh, to help you make your decision at the store, I guess. You but can add it, solarid. Yeah. In the oh, yeah. We could do that, yes. Actively solarid. Yeah. Um, usually solarid is applying to a longer aging effort. So that is how we keep this thing going. And we, keep, we just keep it rolling every time we pull Every time we pull beer out, you know, fresh warts going in. It's a machine at this point. You guys have a few of these 250 BBL oak fooders. We do. That's an unusual size, volume. How's it been dealing with those? Any challenges or any advice for people who, all those people out there who are going to get 250 BBL fooders? Well, yeah. After they hear that that's possible. <laughs> Grab a pen and write this down. Yeah, um, I would say the biggest challenge with dealing with them was um, getting them in the door. Um, so they are 250 barrels because our door is 12 feet by 12 feet and our ceiling height for tilt height, you know, restricted the height of the fooder. So we ordered them at 11 and a half feet in diameter. So they fit through the door. And then the, I think they're 12, slightly over 12 feet tall. That 12 feet tall was a Pythagorean theorem, something like that. I don't know how you say it, but uh, so, you know, uh, we had a maximum tilt height that we could use and that's what we ordered. I wouldn't say that the size in general is difficult for dealing with, but the size definitely inhibits, um, you know, multiple projects, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So a big fooder is great if you know exactly what you want to do with it and you've got a design and you've got, you know, an ability to move the product out of it. And that's great. But that's pretty much what it is. You know, whereas if you had, you know, five smaller fooders that totaled 250 barrels, let me do the math there. That's uh, 50 barrels each, I think, (laughs) you know, it allows you to do five different beers at the same time. So Mm -hmm. I think you just, you know, you got to get in where you fit in. For us, uh, 250 barrels was the size we went with. Quite simply, uh, Patrick uh, wanted them. I said, yeah, let's use them. And uh, we bought them, got them in, we, we hit the ground running. So Yeah, that's awesome. And when you guys do, I mean, this is more of a production uh, question, but when you guys are dealing with those, I'd imagine that you know how much you want to draw out of them at any one time is a little varied. Do you take different amounts out at different times and then... Do you leave it, you know, not at full capacity for any amount of time? Do you refill it right away? How do you deal with all that? Well, to me, a fooder is just a really big barrel. So I do not want a partial fooder um, for any more time than I have to. So we try to maximize the volume that we take out. Um, Right now, we're taking out volumes anywhere between 90 barrels and 200 barrels. Recently, we just pulled 200 barrels out, um, brewed 30 barrels that day. That goes in, we get the fermentation going again, mm-hmm. and then we just keep feeding it sugar throughout. You know, it takes us maybe two to two to three weeks um, to get it full again. But yeah, it being just a large wood vessel, I hate to not have beer touching the top. Sure. I mean, simply put, like that just goes against everything that I think you should do with wood. So full is best, empty is good if you need to. But right now, we've had no reason to empty it. You know, the beer is good, so. Gotcha. And, you know, you spoke about how you should be treating wood when it comes to this stuff. Let's take a few steps back maybe and get into your your background, how you ended up at the brewery, and what was that transition like? Yeah, sure. So I'm one of those sour beer makers that started off in the wine world. I was a winemaker on the Central Coast at several small wineries. I did that for five years as a winemaker, um, like eight years in the wine industry. Um, started off doing a mobile bottling line going around to different wineries, uh, networking with winemakers. It's actually why I took the job at the mobile bottling line was I didn't really want to run a bottling line, but I really wanted to meet as many people as I could, and it was a, a great outlet to do so. 
so throughout the years of winemaking, um, obviously I've I've always been a big craft beer fan, a big fan of uh, Belgian ales, um, sour beers, big fan of the brewery. You know, I wasn't like the biggest fanboy of the brewery, but I was very cognizant of what was going on down in Orange County and really liked the beers that were coming out of there. About two and a half years ago, I was looking for a new wine job. I went home one day and I, I told my wife that the winds of change are in the air and, and I'm, I can quote myself on that. I, I remember, you know, being really upset and just telling her that, that, you know, I'm doing something, you know. You had the boombox on your shoulder playing the Scorpion song. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so basically I, I sat down that night and I, you know, worked on my resume. It had been a couple of years since I'd updated it, you know, and I sent it out for a bunch of different wine jobs. And while I was doing that, I was on a, a website that I'm sure most of the sour beer guys and a lot of barrel aged beer guys know uh, winebusiness.com um you can go there and find a lot of uh used equipment and barrels uh, yeah well you know <laughs> it, it's always fun competing with everybody else trying to get them you know so it's, it's i like the battle of trying to win so yeah. basically i was on that website one day and uh there was this job listing for the brewery you know i, I started reading down the list of things that they were looking for and I was like, wow, I could do that. I could do that. I could do this. You know, the one thing I couldn't do was the one thing they really wanted, which was, you know, commercial brewing experience, <laughs> which sounds like <laughs> a really big thing. But when your resume is ready, it's really, really easy to hit send, you know. So I went ahead and sent it down there and uh, kind of laughed with some friends about, you know, hey, I just sent a resume down to it. <laughs> wow. Hit the send button. <laughs> hit the send button, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, wow. Hey, I, you, you got my train of thought uh, just took off there. Um, excuse but, me know, while I bang my head a little bit. <laughs> you, know, you talk about not having the brewing experience, but Taru is just basically a winery. It is. I mean, we're sugar to bottle. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it really is exactly in my wheelhouse of what I did. Uh, anyway, just to return to that story, I'll, I'm, I'll wrap it up really quick. But no, uh, keep going. Yeah, I, uh, I ended up sitting down with Patrick and uh, Tyler King at the time, who was our director of brewing operations, and. Um, you know, really had a nice uh, conversation in person on a Saturday afternoon. I left that conversation, you know, really, really, really intrigued about the program and what they wanted to do. I did even more research on both of those gentlemen and, you know, got really excited. And it took a while, but they finally ended up offering me a job. At that time, uh, I would had a couple other wine offers and a lot of my friends were jealous that I had, you know, multiple job offers at the same time. But you know, in my position, that was really, really stressful and a lot of bad decisions that could be made. But ultimately, you know, I was uh, 40 years old. I just turned 40. And, you know, I was like, who gets an opportunity to go do something new at this age? How many once-in-a-lifetime opportunities happen? And the answer to that is one, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah. I just said, well, if I do this, you know, I, I don't know if I can do it, but I think I can. And that was that was exciting. And one of the main reasons I did it was was really because the brewery and brewery true now have always been like super experimental and i just got really tired of working for wine companies that would tell me that this is the way we make cabernet Mm -hmm. and you know it didn't matter what my idea was you know if it that's not the way they made cabernet you know i just need to get away from that and going to work for patrick has you know been very liberating we've been able to do a lot of really cool stuff and you know i can try ideas on a small scale if they don't work they don't work but if they do you know there's potential to grow so so anyway, I started uh, down at the brewery, um, you know, January of 2015. Uh, and so basically they brought me in to run the Taru program, facilitate that and do the build out there. And so I came in, hit the ground running, got a good staff together. And um, you know, now we're over two years later, and I think we're accomplishing some really cool stuff. 
Definitely. And we've already tasted two of those uh, examples so far. Um, I'm just curious with that transition, you know, that was, you know, a life changing choice and a, a bit of a pivot. But you did have, you know, some some of the translatable skills as you came into the job. And now, you know, two years later, what are the things that you kind of found easy as a transition? And what was kind of more difficult? Because I think there are a lot of winemakers who are getting into sour beer. If some of them are listening, what's what's some advice for them? Well, I think the easiest things are the tangible aspects, um, barrel management, cellar management, uh, cellar staff management, beer flow through the system, whether it be into barrels, into stainless primary tanks, or to bright beer, back to barrels, into big barrels, small barrels, fooders. You know, moving liquid around a cellar, you have to be on your game as a winemaker because you are swamped for three months during the year. Um, and then, obviously, your you know spring and fall bottlings where you're once again swamped moving out of barrels into tanks. And, you know, generally, those kind of things, they don't buy extra stainless tanks to have them sit empty for nine months. You know, so mm-hmm. it's... Uh, you know, as you know, you know, with your cellar, we, we, we go through the same things. Those tanks are always in use. If it's not one thing, it's something else. So I think those things are the easiest. I think probably one of the hardest things for me to wrap my head around that's taken me a while and, and take some knowledge that I need some personal growth and in, in the professional side of these things and is really like yeast and bacteria management. Because really in, in winemaking, you know, you use potassium metabisulfite to mitigate bacterial and wild yeast strains. And so, you know, you dose your wine either as juice and, and wine, finished wine, barrel aging, you dose again, you dose a bottling, and that's how you control that stuff. But growing up your own bacterial cultures is, you know, very challenging and trying to figure out exactly what PDOs you want to use and what lactose you want to use and, and why you want to use them in specific beers. You know, this Frederick Age and Fruct is a good example of, you know, where we've come to. We could have easily just, you know, used our house culture for this beer and and had something that was probably really good, but we really wanted to design something that was, you know, its own thing. And then, you know, just to go back to the winemaking on the yeast side, winemaking yeast management is, <laughs> it doesn't really exist um, in comparison to the brewing world. Uh, yeast management in the brewing world is really a science all of its own. You know, usually have somebody dedicated to it. There's, you know, you're paying somebody a good amount of dollars a year to make sure that they can keep this stuff going and, and keep your wort stream fermenting, you know. So in winemaking, it's like you buy a brick, you know, you uh, hydrate it, and you th- it's not really this simple. You th- you just throw it in, you know. There is a huge, huge assimilation process, feeding it more sugar, you know, trying to get the temperatures right so you don't get shock. But quite honestly, the, the struggle of, of wrapping your head around bacteria and yeast and how important it is um, and how important it is to get your pitch right, your pitch rates right, and, you know, that is something that, you know, I never heard of a cell count in winemaking. The only time I ever heard of a cell count was when we sent out some wine for Brett analysis mm-hmm. and it came back too many to count, you know, so that was <laughs> oh, no. a really bad, bad thing, you know, <laughs> you know, in beer, that's not such a bad thing. If you're, if you're making yeah. a Brett beer, that is definitely, that's great. Great advice for, for everyone out there, just uh, kind of what to expect when making that transition. But I think it's becoming more and more of a popular career transition for the reasons, you know, you listed there's some more creativity but also some skills that that translate over should we maybe do question question and break yeah let me ask one first though about yeah, the sure. Uh, sure. the fruit the boysenberry let's go to scott m yes uh, thanks jay <laughs> uh my question is about the am, am i the only i don't know if it's my coffee palette but i'm perceiving turn on, as, turn on your radio please <laughs> in the background 
<laughs> Scott. Okay, sorry about that. Um, the exceptional dryness of this beer. Exceptionally dry, right? I mean, how are you achieving that? I, personally, I, I love it. That's what I, I look for in so many different styles, especially fruited sours. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, how are you achieving that? Well, uh, and I'll take my answer off the air. Well, that is a palate sensation because it is not very dry. Really? This, this beer is terminal around two Play-Doh. Mm-hmm. So... Am I the only I, one getting that? Is I it my palate right now? It's certainly balanced. It's super drinkable. Uh, um, I, I'm Yes. I mean, it is a good thing. It's hard to tell, for me, the finishing gravities of some sour beers, because it's more just about everything else going on. I mean, all the acids, the carbonation. I mean, even, like, Brett, I feel like sometimes can affect the mouthfeel enough to make you think it's either drier or less dry. But that's, that's like, a one to one-half Play-Doh more than... Uh, most of our golds finish hmm. at one point five. Wow. Okay, then one. it totally is just my coffee tongue. He could just not have a good palate, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's entirely possible. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, Elsa two is not like outrageously high. No, no, it's time. not. It's not. But it is uh, in comparison to our barrel aged blonde beers and our fruit refermented blonde ales. Yeah, this this would oh, not be nearly as dry. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's, a, it's an interesting topic to get into too because. When we were started, I said it before. When we were starting the rare barrel, I really tried to look into how to bottle condition these beers. They were really freaking out about residual sugar and what if we send bottles out that have residual sugar. And Brett, how do you deal with that? And I just drew off my experience at the brewery where we package beers at you know one to four, four and a half sometimes Play-Doh, and didn't have much problem with overcarbonation or you know having to like recall something for overcarb. And I talked to other people who were like, oh, all of our beers finish at 0.0, and we would never send a beer out, if it, or we would never package a beer out. Though. And then I was like... Yeah, I've heard okay. that from folks, too, and I, I, I don't know how they get that. And it was like 50-50, I'd, then someone would be right in the middle. You know, it's like, oh, but our beers are usually around 1.5 to 2.5, and yeah, we're fine. And so at, after a while, I was just like, we just need to put beer into bottle, and... Let it and be. see what happens. Yeah, kind of thing. Unfortunately, it's a hard yeah. way to run a business, but <laughs> yeah. sometimes you got to see what happens. I, I personally think this beer is terminal um, due to its acidity level and really nothing more. Because this is this is not a Saccharomyces beer. This is a Brett beer. Mm-hmm. You know, most logic would tell you this beer is going to run in bottle to bone dry, and you're going to have a problem on your hands. But with the acidity, it just it stopped it and it's yeah. done. You know, scary, but <laughs> it is scary. Huh? <laughs> Something to consider for sure. Well, let me do this question. It's actually a okay. statement, uh, sticking with uh, fruit questions. I'll turn it into a question at the end. It's actually a statement from uh, Brendan A. As it pertains to the pina colada sour that we had on the last show, uh, Manny's homebrewed pina colada sour. Yeah. Brendan says, uh, hey, in your last episode, you guys were talking about the pina colada Berliner Weiss, and all the people in the studio tasting it said they could smell chocolate and that it reminded them of German chocolate cake. Your mm-hmm. guest said that he had not had that aroma described before. You mentioned none of the judges had mentioned that. And... Uh, uh, he says, I have heard our aroma and flavor descriptors are based on experiences. So when I heard the conversation, I thought the following questions. Is German chocolate cake a regional food in the U.S.? Would it be more prevalent in some areas than others? So could it, you know, the, possible the judges who tasted the beer have n- not had that food to make that coconut association with the German chocolate? So interesting observation. I, I don't really know how regional German chocolate cake is. Yeah, let's go to Jeremy for that one. An analysis on the regionality of German chocolate. I don't even know what German chocolate cake is. I'm honest. That's an honest statement. I really don't even know. I just had it for the first time a few years ago. My girlfriend's family, they have it like once a year. And I was like, oh, 
I don't typically like coconut, but when it's covered in chocolate, I'm like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Regional, maybe experiential, absolutely. Totally. I mean, we even develop common terms that are not actually really the same, but, you know, we taste for a while as a team, as a panel, and kind of get on the same page about, oh, your garbage is my cigar. You know, it's like if I say this reminds me of cigar, you say trash. And then you, you independently of each other, get back to that place many times you just kind of like no even during some of our tastings of beers just smell it and then two people who know they're on the same page about this <laughs> aroma or flavor kind of look at each other and they're like oh yeah yeah, yeah. we know <laughs> we know what this is but yeah it's it's interesting i mean i don't think the judges were missing anything or anything like that it's just you know it was being tasted by our panel at the rare barrel mm-hmm. so i mean it's not surprising that we kind of hone in on something together rather than, you know, expecting some other judge to get it. Well, and, and let me turn it into a question for Jeremy and the brewery. Have you guys used, do you use pineapple? you ever used pineapple in your sours? We have, yes, we have. How'd that experience go? How'd you add it? Um, before I was there, it went really well. They, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they made a, uh, oh man, I'm, I really wish you hadn't brought this up, but you did. Um, so they made a uh, pineapple coconut a couple of them, I'm sure, a lot of uses of everything at the brewery. But, you know, they made a sour in the rye with pineapple and coconut that was... Uh, it was after my time also, I think. Yeah, it was very, very, very popular. Man, I wish you didn't bring this up. But, <laughs> this is good. This is good pop, <laughs> Yeah, dude. this is good. This is great. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a draft project, and it, um, you know, obviously, oh, everybody loved it. It was the best thing ever. People stood in line for it and whatnot. Last year, I tried to recreate that beer. Had re- really, really horrible luck in scaling. Ended up in bottle with a product that we decided not to release. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, we had to announce to our club members, unfortunately, that uh, the beer did not pass you know, QA and QC. And so we're sitting on it currently. It did not go well. It was that really bad announcement, you know, that that we had to make. And... Um, I guess if anybody out there is listening that is still upset by that, uh, just understand that we did not release it because it was not good enough for you. So hopefully in the future, you know, we'll be able to figure out what went wrong, how it went wrong, uh, wrong, uh, mitigate it, and uh, maybe, and don't quote me on this because <laughs> I don't necessarily want to make it again, <laughs> but uh, maybe, you know, we'll, we'll try to figure out how to actually do it appropriately for bottle. Are you hoping it gets better in the bottles? Is are you still holding out hope? Of course, there's there's always hope, but I think at a certain point you've got to you got to make the call to uh, let it go. Space becomes more valuable. Sure, yeah, sure, exactly. Well, we heard how Manny added the pineapple, and he he had really good success. So, and I know it's a sore subject, and forgive me, but just for as an educational experience, you know, what, let's maybe see how it differed. How how was the pineapple added? Well, here's the thing. The, the beer, I didn't listen to the last show, so I don't I don't know the beer you're talking about. But was that a homebrew? Home it was, beer? yeah. It was a pineapple co- pineapple Berliner Weiss, pineapple mm-hmm. coconut Berliner Weiss. Okay, well, you know, we were making eighty barrels of this beer. I would be curious to scale up that homebrewer's recipe for adding pineapple. Whether they added juice or my guess is they probably added juice. No, he didn't. He he cooked and pureed pineapple, didn't he? Okay. Well, you remember, Jay? <laughs> I was that, checked out. That doesn't. <laughs> you were, no, he. Yeah, it wasn't quite, just juice. Quite, quite honestly, that doesn't make it any better uh, because on that scale, uh, you know, we can't cook and puree pineapple. Right. Um, so you know, the first time we did it as a draft project, it was a 
a juice, uh, you know, pineapple juice, and it was uh, 200 gallons of juice or so for a 10, 15-barrel batch. I, I don't know. Don't quote me on these numbers. I'm just throwing them out there. But, you know, to scale that up to 80 barrels, you know, we needed we needed an amount of juice that just wasn't practical. Hmm. So for that beer, you know, we went down a concentrate route, had a horrible time sourcing pineapple concentrate, could not find anything that was truly good. And what we did is we used the best thing we could find. And that wasn't the only problem with the beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was one of the problems. But the coconut was also a problem. There was, there was some other off flavors that came about. But, you know, scaling is it's, it's, it's really hard to make small amounts of beer. But when you pull off a small amount of beer, it doesn't always mean that you can scale that to a production size. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes when you um, have an experimental beer or a pilot beer, you kind of get stuck in this thing as a production manager where they want you to make that product and um, it doesn't always scale appropriately. So you have to figure out another way to do it. And, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. And, you know, I wish that I wish that it did. I also wish that, you know, we would have had the foresight to catch it pre-bottle. But, you know, unfortunately, we we moved ahead and, uh, you know, it bit us. So. Can we please stop talking about yeah, this now? Yeah, I'm Thank sorry, to, it, but it, it does help people to, to hear how things went wrong. I, I know. Yeah, it sucks no, to talk you about, know, but. honestly, no, it doesn't suck to talk about. I'm, I'm, you know, actually, you know, with a grin saying that, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, you know, you learn from your mistakes, you know, um, and there was a lot of mistakes made, and some of them, definitely on my part as a production manager, were made in, um, you know, moving a product forward. So, you know, it's not a happy experience, but. I did learn something about myself. I learned to like trust my instincts even more and to use my voice when I can. So I will make another mistake in the future, but it won't be the same one. So, you know, I learned something and that's all you can do. Yep. And those projects are terribly hard to scale up. And then yep. you go from something that either sells quick or maybe it's draft only. And then like you're saying, oh, this, this was great. Let's make it huge. And that creates problems because then you're going to put a lot more out there. They're going to sit on the shelves longer mm-hmm. and it's just a whole different process. Again, yeah. And then to source as well, we also made a pineapple beer and again, people really like that, but I've been scared to scale it up. So, you know, it's on our list of to do's, but I want to understand the challenges that go with pineapple. I've heard something about some enzymatic activities that happen with pineapple that kind of discourage refermentation. Yeah. It's a yeast mm. killer. <laughs> Basically. Oh, interesting. So I don't really understand that beyond exactly what we just said. Yeah, so, I don't either. Um, some pe- some t- people have said that doing a heating step actually could kill off some of those enzyme. enzymes. And you think about someone like Oregon Fruit, they're just rolling out their pineapple. I'm not sure if it's juice or puree. No, um, it's a puree, and hmm. they, and it's pasteurized, and it right? goes yeah, so, it goes above 190. So that you know that's something we're looking at also. But definitely, yeah, it's great to have time to kind of understand the science. But then again, you know, sometimes you need, oh, let's do something with this beer. That beer was great. Let's make it. And that can be that can be tough. We, yeah. we made a, a draft-only beer with hibiscus called Cosmic Dust. We still make it to this day. But we've bottled it one time, and we've never bottled it since because the hibiscus color falls off dramatically hmm. in the first six months of aging. And the, the base beer was still good, and it didn't create any off flavors, but... We're marketing this beer as like, this looks like, you know, a cluster of stars and galaxies and stuff. Which <laughs> just it goes to from like cool pink purple to just straight gold. It's like, okay, that's not 
that's not this beer anymore. So scaled it back down actually after that and then just made it a draft only. But, you know, sometimes these beers just need to be, I mean, this is the approach that we do, but these beers need to just stay small. But it's the ones that you don't expect any problems with are the ones that, you know, can sometimes bite you the most. I mean, you guys made that beer already and it was great. Yeah. yeah. But so it's just the, like, the trick is it was, it was draft. Right. right. And when you, you bottle um, sour beer, you know, there's a lot of other variables that, you know, a refrigeration unit keeps you away from. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we learned. It's tough. <laughs> I believe I we learned. So. I know we're up against going to a break, but just one other thing I wanted to say is something that we're just getting into at the Rare Barrel since we just uh, hired our quality manager in October. But, you know, production and sometimes even sales failures or bad moments are at the same time the greatest triumphs for quality. So while... You know, most of the brewery and and honestly, the the followers of the brewery and brewery Teru, there there may be some disappointment there. That's going to be the greatest moment for quality because against all odds, you're saying stop. This is not good enough, and we'd rather you know take the heat on this to not release this because it's not representative of the great beer we think we can make. So right. I think it's all credit to you guys. To actually, it takes guts to do that because you know there's beers out there that are not up to par, to be frank. Yep. And, you know, some people aren't willing to do that. And it's it's a testament to you guys that you are, you know, in that circumstance. So Yeah, that, we quickly came up with a alternative product for our members. But, you know, <laughs> thank you for the compliment that, that we didn't release it. We did do the right thing, so. Yeah, and that's that. Here endeth the lesson. Thank you. Thank you very much for ending this conversation. <laughs> yeah, oh, hey, it's thanks. time for a break. All right. Thanks for the email, Brendan. That that was that. Was yeah. Good thanks, stuff. Brendan. Yeah. All right. <laughs> thanks a lot. We'll move on to uh, other pineapple beers right after this break on the Sour Hour. Nico, listen, our lawyers said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this, we don't have to talk to each other for three more months until the the next meeting. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines. I'm the professional. Hey, it's Sully. And I'm Nico. And we opened the 21st Amendment 10 years ago at 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park, to make great beer and have a great time doing it. That's right, because to us, the 21st Amendment is more than just the right to make beer. It's the right to experiment, to be innovative, and just do things differently. And so now, we're putting our craft beer in cans. That's right, cans. You can find our world-famous Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer at Brew for Your Die IPA in the Northeast, Northwest, parts of the Midwest, and Alaska in cans and on draft. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans. Because everyone likes it in a can. Tasty Crack Cans. Tasty Crack Cans. Network. A few more uh, sponsors to thank. Got a new one right here. I think this is new. Fresh. Super Nishim- fresh. Nishimini Creek. Nishimini. Nishimini Creek. Yeah. Brewing. Been on the Philly Beer map since 2012. Three-time Philly Beer Scene Magazine Brewer of the Year. 
14, 15, and 16. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Hope for the best for 17. Two-time JBF Vienna-style lager winner, 2013 gold, 16 bronze, also a bronze for the smoke lager. Large, expanded, recently renovated tap room, 24 beers on tap, 18 of which are rotating and seasonal limited beers. Variety of beer styles from hoppy double IPAs to sessionable and poundable lagers to oak-fermented saisons and sour beers, which we were lucky enough to try. Thank yeah. you very much. That's right. Jeremy sent in a care package a couple of few months ago to us, and that was really nice of him. And now uh, he is sponsoring the network. That's good that's on him. Terrific. The Free brewery master. tours on Saturdays. They have a new second location opening this spring. Check it all out. NishiminiCreekBrewing.com. Did we get that right, Bevo? Nishimini? Nishimini. One more thing, AHA. Have you seen Brew Guru? The Brew Have you Guru? Seen this? The Brew Guru. Yeah, I downloaded the hell out of that app. It's built for homebrewers and beer lovers. Brew Guru delivers sage brewing knowledge and money saving deals at breweries, beer bars, and homebrew supply shops. The American Homebrew Association designed this powerful mobile app to help homebrewers and calf, craft get cat beer lovers. <laughs> Simcoe? <laughs> That's just JP. <laughs> Craft beer lovers, uh, explore the wide world of beer we all share. With Brew Guru, you can you like that? Bro, effortlessly bro, bro. find deals and save money on beer, food, and brewing supplies. Level up your brew IQ on Brew Guru <laughs> with handpicked articles. Prove then. Prove? No. Pro. That didn't work. Then. Recipes and trusted resources from the American Homebrewers Association and Zymergy Magazine. Use the powerful brewery locator tool. Tool. That's not actually there, but I just said it anyway. <laughs> uh, to find nearby breweries, tap rooms, beer bars, homebrew supply shops, and brew pubs wherever you are. Brew Guru will lead you to good beer. Get the app today and follow the path to beery enlightenment. It's free for iPhone, iPad, Android devices. <laughs> Learn more at homebrewassociation.org. For sure. Brew Guru. It's a good app. Check it out. Excellent. Okay. We're back. Oh, I don't have any beer. Can oh. we open beer? There yes, we do. Oh, there it is. Ruse. What do we have here? Ruse. Yeah, so we have Brewery Teru Ruse. This is our take on it. Is the recipe for Brewery Teru Ruse on the Brew Guru app? <laughs> Ruse on the Guru. I don't know. That is a that is a interesting way to say Brewery Goo. Ruse. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is uh, this is our take on a Goose uh, style blend. Just to make it clear, this is not a turbid mash beer. Um, this is not a spontaneous beer, but it is a really a blending project of three-year-old beer, two-year-old beer, and uh, new beer, one-year-old mm-hmm. beer. Obviously, Jay, you had a hand in making this beer for years at the brewery. This is, I believe, the 2016. So this is the one we put together, uh, I think, around October. So it is a bottle condition with uh, Brett Lampicus, which is kind of what we've been doing for a long time with it. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, a real workhorse in our cellar, as I'm sure your Blondale is as well, um, barrel-aged Blonde, I'm assuming it would be. So this is a base beer for a lot of our fruited barrel-aged projects, um, you know, Sams Paget, Phil Mishmish in the past, uh, Beauregard, and, and uh, shoot, there's probably a hundred more <laughs> that I don't, I can't think of. But yeah, this is a... I think a little bit less acidic than it has been in the past, um, which I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. I think it's terrific. I think uh, the less acidic thing is right on. I could easily drink this whole bottle, which is my new threshold for the balance of a sour beer, which is, t- you know, yeah. drinking a whole bottle of sour beer. It's not everyone's uh, on everyone's to do, but I, I like it just fine. Yeah. So I think this is 
definitely hits that threshold of I could drink this whole thing definitely. if you guys weren't here. <laughs> <laughs> now, would you say this is less acidic than the Frederick H that we had? Surprisingly, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. But the the Frederick H was again that was another whole bottom one for me. Um, you know, I think a little higher tolerance for acid, but I still have a preference for you know more more moderate acidity levels, and this is. Nice and light, but you get a lot of the complex bread and just a hint of oak in the background. It's really, it's excellent. Yeah, that's what stands out to me, too, through these beards, is the, the complexity of all of them. Yeah, even the Berliner style, there's complexity there. And for me, this is really kind of like white wine grape, really a lot of oak character. It's got white wine characteristics. And like you're saying, Jay, moderate acidity. The balance is beautiful on all Mm -hmm. these beers. They're just highly drinkable. They're fantastic. Yeah, I think uh, thinking back to your statement on the, um, I think you actually were talking about the boysenberry fruct, um, but I think you can apply that to the Frederick H and to the uh, fruct series is, uh, I think the mouthfeel on those is, is a lot thinner. Um, which may apply to you getting that um, drying effect. Mm. Um, you know, I notice in this beer, it's a much fuller-bodied thing. I think that's, you know, relatable to the multiple Saccharomyces yeast, Britannomyces, and probably the PDO, really, giving that fuller mouthfeel. So, like I said, this is a workhorse for us. Uh, it's a really, really easy beer to make in the cellar. It ferments really quick, and um, we get it put away in barrels, and... It's it's easy. I like easy beers. <laughs> <laughs> simple beers, right? Yeah, you know, simple. like the the approach is simple, but the fermentation is complex, and you can right. drive a lot of interesting flavors from that. I'm interested to know a little bit more about the bottle conditioning, kind of across the board. So you mentioned this one uh, has lambicus. We'll take that one first. How does that go? Do you guys ever have problems propping that up for a big batch of roux? No, or no. It- we don't have problems with the uh, propping of that, but. Um, as a rule of thumb, we don't bottle condition our fruited beers. And then even on a beer like this or Oud Tart that we do, um, we do do a par carb on that. Mm-hmm. And so we use basically are just bottle conditioning that lasts like 0.5 volume. You know, we're par carbing to a 2 or a 2.2 mm-hmm. um, and then pitching and priming for the finish. So, I mean, honestly, like to do a beer called Ruse that is a take on a goose-style blending project, as I said, uh I don't know, like not putting Brett Lampicus in it seems crazy to me. So it kind of like needs that, you know, to to draw it together. I don't think it is the biggest profile of the beer at all. I mean, personally, I think the um, the wood, so I don't really think there's a lot of wood, but I mean, what's in wood? I mean, if we're taking for this beer 200 individual barrels and blending them together, there's a lot of complexity that's laying in that wood. Um, I think that's where where really the complexity of the beer comes from, not really from the Brett, but it being our take on on that goose style. It's like, I mean, <laughs> it's we we need to say there's lambicus in there, so let's put it in there. You know, you know, you mentioned complexity and blending two hundred oak barrels together. That seems complex from the procedural side of things. Yeah, what's your guys' general approach to blending, and then how do you? What's the challenge in blending so many barrels together? Because you guys, we, I guess we didn't really touch on it, but right. Brewery Taru is, you know, in the, in the brewery overall is one of the biggest barrel aging, craft beer barrel aging programs yeah. in the world. And I think you guys have approaching 2,000 barrels on the sour side, a little bit less. Yeah, uh, no, we're, we're around 2,200 barrels oh, there on you the go. sour side. So that's one of the, you know, yeah. if not the biggest sour program, it's, it's up there. Right, Um I think Walt has has aspirations never to, cru- heard, to never crush everybody, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean his place, geez, uh, new place is insane. Yeah, 
But yeah, we have, uh, I would say, 1,900 to 2,000 uh, individual wine barrels in the cellar. And then we have a fleet of about 145 puncheons that we use as primary fermentation vessels, which I'm pretty sure we were doing when you were there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I'm sure some of those puncheons are the same puncheons. Uh, <laughs> and then we also have, um, I think right now we're approaching... Uh, 28 to 30 500 liter punchins that we're using for storage as well so we've started to do a little bit more storage and punchins what was the question again well practically speaking how do you blend a beer like oh, oh, like yeah, you, yeah. you know is it oh it's easy blend it's 200? easy anybody can do it um, <laughs> yeah well okay so there's some uh some limitations um based on equipment um that have changed just recently up until oh shoot four months ago our largest bright beer tank was 60 barrels so, uh, you know, 200 uh, physical wine barrels is, you know, equivalent to, say, 350, 360 BBL of beer. And with a 60 BBL bright tank, that means we have to do six individual blends, um, six parts, and try to make them all taste the same. I think that when you were at the brewery, you probably had the same. I'm assuming there's a couple beers that were like that where you had a couple different parts. Um, mm-hmm. I think Black Tuesday got over our largest yeah. bright threshold at that time. Yeah, so um, you know that was a uh, a feat in itself. Trying trying to make those parts all taste the same. Three or four months ago, we got in a hundred and seventy barrel uh, conical bright tank that I think has a working capacity of like one hundred and ninety five barrels or so. Yeah. So uh, that's going to be a huge tool in getting a little more consistency between the blends. So and how did that get in the door? <laughs> once once again, uh, it is 11 and a half feet in diameter okay. <laughs> uh, with a uh, tilt-up height that matches. Um, mm-hmm. um, but that is going to be a tool for us to build a little more consistency throughout the blend. So that's just a little bit of backstory. But blending in itself is you know kind of one of those things I didn't touch on with the uh, wine background. But in winemaking, if I was going to finish a 7,500-gallon, which would be roughly you know 250 BBL, type blend i often found it more important what you didn't put into it as opposed to what you did put into it and there's some tough decisions to make when you go down that road you know bad barrels don't go in i mean just flat out you know but you know a barrel that would be considered bad on its own but not not bad but going bad or, or whatnot uh I try to think of a way to explain this where it doesn't sound uh like i'm putting bad beer into a beer but I guess what I'm saying is a, an interesting barrel. Um, in wine, you know, you could take a, a barrel that had a volatile acidity, which in, in beer we're calling that, you know, nail polish, you know, um, something like that. You could put into uh, one barrel into a wine, um, you know, could really, like, change the whole profile of it. And, you know, one little bad thing can, can create something good throughout some complexity. You know, that being said, there is a little bit of beer that goes into these blends that we would call what we term is just a blender. Like it's not a great beer upon itself, you know, but it can really add a little bit of complexity. So the way I like to blend is I like to, um, you know, kind of, kind of conceptually know where I'm going. Where do I want this beer to be? Um, this beer traditionally, I, I think maybe had a little too much age on it and had an acidity level that was, you know, a little higher than I wanted it to be. But the good qualities that it always had, every bottle of Ruse that I've ever had, um, it's always had really good stone fruit character, somewhat zesty, and uh, I don't want to say pithy, but, you know, a little bit zesty, uh, always had wood. So um, when we're tasting barrels, we're really looking for some really, like, five-star barrels, you know, like some really, like, just 
if there's a perfect barrel in the cellar, like what I want the finished product to be, you know, that's the barrel we want, you know. And I really feel like if you build off of that, then you could start really dialing in the end product. Um, so, you know, we'll go through and build this blend. And, you know, if we have notes on, you know, 10 barrels that all have really good stone fruit character, um, when we try to break it out into a blend in different parts, we're not going to put all 10 of those barrels in the same part. You know, we want to make sure we spread those around. Um, the same thing with this beer in particular, because we are blending for different ages as we are looking at, you know, where is that three-year-old beer going? You know, every part needs to have some of that in it. Every part needs to have the young beer. So there's a lot of blending, you know, pre-blending on paper. Uh, there's the physical blending of getting out there and tasting everything. There's, you know, putting all that into a sheet, looking at it again on paper, getting the barrels out, tasting the barrels again. And, you know, constantly be willing to pull things out. And I, I do that quite often. I let my staff do a lot of the work on the blending nowadays, which is great because they've all grown. They've all really, really grown. I mean, we've all grown together, but, you know, some of them are really developing their palates and, you know, really understanding what we're doing and why we're doing it. So, um, you know, I let them go through. I let them taste things. And I sit in my office. I overlook their notes. I'll sometimes ask them to pull certain barrels for me so I can taste them. You know, try to get everybody involved. But it's not uncommon for me to look at a blend on paper and start Xing things out and be like, nope, we're not using that because, you know, I'm thinking about next year's project or mm -hmm. the next, you know, fruited beer I want to do. And I don't want to consume all of this batch. You know, I know that I only have three barrels left from that batch. So I, I wish there was like a really, you know, one word answer. Like I blend like this, you know, but, uh, you know, every, every, every beer is different. You know, sometimes you've got some really, really good pieces to mm -hmm. blend together. Uh, sometimes you don't have the best stuff, you know, and you have to figure out how to make those lesser parts, you know, a bigger collective thing, you know. Yeah, definitely. I don't think there's any one way to describe blending at all. So I think, you know, it needs as, as many words as it can get, basically, because it's so complex. But, you know, even if you're blending at home two carboys together, that's that can be just as, as, as complex as you want it to be, even versus, you know, 200 oak barrels and all the yeah, not just the tasting that everyone thinks of, but the inventory checks, the physical movement of all the barrels, you know, last quality checks and having a vessel big enough to fit it all and yeah, be consistent sure. throughout the bottling process. So there's a lot that goes into it there. Scott? Yes, Jay. I think this is what I want to do. I'm going to mention a few things, take a question or two, and then hit our show break. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot more to talk about, a lot more beer to have. Yep. So one thing I want to mention is another great sponsor, iDip. You dip. Which... JP was supposed to bring us an iDip. He said he had one. That never happened? No, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, I, I, I've been gone, though. So. I left the email thread, assuming that it was taken care of, well, which is JP. foolish. But anyway, what, here's why we want it. It's because it's a home or commercial use water testing kit, which incorporates a revolutionary photometer. Photometer? What do you think? Photometer? <laughs> photometer. Photometer. <laughs> Lost my place. <laughs> 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 which, which is the first and only on the market with its own app. The iDip can perform over 40 different water quality tests for things like chloride, calcium hardness, pH, sulfate, and much more. Podcast listeners should enter code TBN10, that's TBN10, at checkout and save $10 on either the standard or advanced smart brew testing kit. Order now and make this futuristic technology Part of your brewing process, visit www.smartbrewkit.com. 
also listen to other BN shows. All right, let's get to some <laughs> questions, questions and wrap. Yes, let's do that. And I will I will revisit that uh, email thread and make sure you guys get that idip over there at the rear barrel. Uh, well, you know, here, let's do this um, blendery question, and this is good because this is a pro question, and that you guys are just coming off this uh, um, blending conversation. So this is from Brandon Bascombe, who says, guys, I'm curious uh, how different it is for a blendery to get TTB approval as opposed to a traditional American brewery. Since you don't have a brew house and oak ferment, what all did the TTB want to see? Beyond a bright tank to blend and measure for excise tax, did they require much else? Oh, can I answer this? Sorry, I was drinking some more ruse. Well, you're uh, going to have to answer it because you're the only business yeah, owner here. Right. So. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, breweries are where the beer is fermented. So there's no license difference from that perspective at all. I get asked a lot, oh, is, you, this must have been you know, cheaper to start up a certain way. No, it wasn't. No. It was extremely expensive. <laughs> if you're looking for cheap, <laughs> starting a business is not, don't do that. Especially a, a crap brewery. Yeah. But good luck. Indeed. Thanks for the question. Here's another one from uh, Corey Barton. Uh, Corey says, uh, hey there, longtime listener, fan of the show, and Jay's Beers. Question about sampling from barrels. In the foreword to Wood and Beer, Wayne Wombles of Cigar City mentions that in his experiments with wood aging beers, he found the beer in his barrels to be stratified. What is that? Like different at different levels. I don't know if he means inside of one oak barrel or in like an oak barrel stack. I'm going to guess he's going to say inside of one oak barrel. Okay. Okay. To be stratified with the beer at different levels inside the barrel, tasting differently as it was closer or further from the wood surface. I see. He said he was never entirely sure how the wood character of the beer was until the beer was mixed around and homogenized. Uh, I know that with his barrel program, he is specifically looking for strong wood character in clean beer, but this made me stop to wonder if Jay has had any experience similar with his barrels, uh, or you, Jeremy. Uh, if you're just sampling uh, from a vinny nail, could a portion of the beer you're pulling out not reflect the entire character of the barrel, or does sour beer become more homogenized since the microbes are still actively working in the beer? Why don't you go first? Um, I've, got a, I've okay. got a thought on this. but Okay. Well, I think they're, we're talking about two different things. I think of stratification as um, sediment or yeast, so a yeast load. So if you've got a, a fresh beer in a barrel, maybe you're only three, six months in, um, you might have a, a pretty yeasty beer that you're tasting. That's going to affect everything that you taste, your mouthfeel, um, flavor profiles. Um, so to me, when I think of stratification, I think of... You know, a good example for people, if they don't know what I'm talking about, is uh, take a jar full of water, put some dirt in it, shake it up, and you got you got muddy water. Um, you put it on the table and come back the next day, you got dirt on the bottom of the bottle and clear water. So, you know, that's stratification and the time that it takes for it to fall out of solution. Um, as far as stratification of wood flavors inside of the barrel, I've never heard of a thing or even thought in that way, personally. Maybe Jay, Maybe Jay has a different opinion on that, but... Honestly, if there's like one little, for lack of a better word, one little flavor um, floating around the barrel, those bacteria are mobile in there, and they're they're moving around. Those yeast are moving around. Like there's there's circumvention, motion, whatever that word is too, um, going on in there. So it's it's mixing itself up. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you know you do see sediment differences at the top of a barrel and bottom. Anyone who's ever fermented in a glass carboy, you know, getting back to the dirt and water thing, you can almost like, so the whole thing's muddy looking with all the yeast. And then you kind of start to see a bar or a band around your carboy of like clarity. And then it starts to slowly, slowly go down. More of the carboy is getting clearer, 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 clearer until it's at the very bottom. 
it's typical for Saccharomyces, but imagine Britannomyces doing that over a hundred days plus. So you never really know when that's going down. So, you know, the mouthfeel is going to change quite a bit from your barrel samples, but I'd say, and I don't know, maybe I'm not sure how much you're, you guys are doing of this, Jeremy, but at, at certain times, maybe when it was more manageable, when I was at the brewery, we would take samples from every barrel we were going to blend and put that into a mock blend and then drink that mock blend. We don't do that at the rare barrel. We do kind of a, a sampling of all the barrels if they're kind of tasting similar. Get the conceptual blend, taste that, and then taste them individually, like free from off flavors, not, you know, outliers in the blend. But even when we took, you know, the the sample from each barrel at the brewery, the end beer never tasted like the compilation of all the samples. So yeah. that's actually kind of why I went away from it is just to get a sampling of it because right. it's just once you get up to 100, 200 oak barrels, that's a lot of samples and things to keep track of and it's quite a bit of work. Yeah, so we sample each indivi- individual barrel for sensory and when we do make a comp- composite blend, it's not for taste. It's strictly for lab analysis. You know, mm-hmm. get an ABV, TA, mm-hmm. pH on a, on a proposed blend. I wasn't there when you guys were tasting it, but uh, that's not the way I do it. I, I do it very similar to the way you do it now. So. so I think there's part of it is just there's some difference with the samples. So maybe there's something to that because it never translates 100%. It's always 90% there. In general, I think it's usually better than, than the samples we collect. I think the tape oh, yeah. tastes better, which is kind of the – I chalk that up to the magic of – blending magical yeah <laughs> any other questions or should we take our show break um there's um tons more but yeah i think we should uh, take a show break because we're run up against it thank you Corey, and everybody for the questions all right i'm gonna do my motion this is the end of the show. it's been a long time did i do this during the last show yeah yeah you, you guys epically missed the the timing you okay. know that your crew was all over the map so i'm not paying attention this time so i'm sure it'll be fine <laughs> Thanks to Jeremy. Thanks to Scott. We will be right back with some more sour beer information from the brewery Taru. Until next time, stay sour. <laughs>